Hello, and welcome to the Go Take Pictures podcast, where we spend time getting to know people who've decided to use photography to communicate in powerful ways. And the question I want to ask, how do they balance making art with being a real person? How does photography fit into their family, their job, struggles, and everyday life? At the end of the conversation, I'm hoping to know where the art comes from and then share that with you. My guest on this episode is Ben Horn. Ben is a large format film photographer based in the San Diego area. Yep, that's right. Large format film. The kind where the film is the size of a family portrait and you get to put a cool hood over yourself when you're setting things up. Ben's approach to photography is incredibly refreshing and his photographs are full of soul. I think you're going to love it. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on this on the podcast today. I'm real excited to have you on. I've been following you, I think, since I heard about since I heard you on a different podcast um, with Matt Payne, uh, and I started following and I was hooked and kind of steadily went through and devoured all of your YouTube content <laughs> um, as far back as I could find, um, and have just really been uh, loving the stuff you've been putting out since then. Um, thanks for being here. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, it is, um, it's a beautiful day here in Portland. It's, uh, I don't know what it's like down there, uh, where hot. you are in California. It's hot. Very hot. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. I didn't bring this up when we were, we were chatting a little bit before we started. Um, you are in the same, you live in the same, uh, city as one of our other guests, uh, from earlier in the season, Patrick four, who works at Taylor guitars. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the, the San Diego area, kind of El Cajon, San Diego area. So yeah. it's, it's kind of cool, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I've visited the factory there before, but here's a little interesting fact. My wife is actually in Santee right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Small world. So, Small yeah. World her, for sure. her, yeah. Her family, she grew up, uh, part of her growing up was in that area. And then her, uh, a whole bunch of her family lives and lives in that area. Um, some live out in Ramona, some live in La Mesa, some live in you know, El Cajon. So it's, um, I'm real familiar with the area and I know she was dreading the heat. <laughs> oh yeah. 107 degrees yesterday. Oh, man. It was crazy. Yeah. 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 She flew down yesterday afternoon. So <laughs> just in uh, time. Yeah. It is kind of a perfect 75 here today. So uh, that's, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Started off foggy, went for a run. It was beautiful. Uh, nice. I'm looking outside and it's really nice out there. Nice. Um, well, for those who don't know about you and don't, don't know your work, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, and I already mentioned you, you live in California, but, uh, if that's not where you started or if that's not where you're from, please share. Yeah. So I've, I've lived here in San Diego all my life. Um, and in terms of photography, I, you know, kind of got interested in high school. Um, and then that's when digital was starting to come out and get pretty good. So I kind of rode that initial wave and then, um, I just kind of decided to go the direction of, of shooting film. Um, because a friend of mine told me that, you know, it's something that would, it's probably the better tool for the job for doing landscape photography, especially back then when digital was just kind of starting to get pretty decent. And so I kind of jumped on the, jumped over to shooting film. And that was back in, I think 2008, 2009. And, nice. uh, I just fell in love with the process of, of shooting large format film and how it slows you down and makes you really think about everything. And, sure. um, and also it really influences like what you can shoot because, like shooting grand landscapes with like rapidly changing light and stuff like that is it's a stress case on large format because the camera's shaking in the wind and the light's changing and you got to meter things. So I kind of was drawn to these smaller scenes on the ground, lots of intimate landscapes, like just some like leaves on the ground and things along those lines. And it's, it's a very sort of 
zen-like to photograph those subjects. And so that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. So it's, you know, you figure it's, it's been over a decade so far and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm just loving the process. That's great. That's great. Uh, one of the things that I have always, uh, as I've been watching you, you put out the, these new series over the last couple of years, I, I find myself kind of mesmerized at the, when you are shooting scenes on the ground, when I think about how big that kid is and how you get it, (laughs) how you orient it so that it's facing towards the ground and you are able to take these shots. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an awkward thing at times, but after a while you kind of, you kind of get used to it, but it's, you know, you, you see this really cool scene on the ground. It's like, how am I going to get the camera to be just right in order to, to shoot that? But it's, um, it, it's really quite, it's, it's almost therapeutic in a way, I guess is kind of the best way to describe it. Um, especially shooting like some stuff on the ground where you're not going to have the, the wind blowing around leaves on a tree or something like that. It just, it, it's a really calm approach to things. And it, it looks completely overkill. Like if you see like, you know, taking a picture of like, you know, a leaf in some mud with an eight by 10 camera, it looks absolutely ridiculous. Right. <laughs> but at the end result, you just see this photo and you don't even think about what went into capturing. It's just, you know, it's just a picture of a leaf. So kind of like the, the camera almost kind of disappears um, and it sort of just fades away. And, and the, also the same thing is when I'm actually shooting the photos with a large format camera. Um, you can't look through the viewfinder once you have the film holder in there. So right. you got the ground glass on the back, you put the film holder in there, then you're ready to shoot. At that point, you're standing next to the camera. You're looking right, right at the subject, you're holding the cable release, and the camera is just off to your side, but you don't even really pay attention to it. You just kind of look at that cable release, wait for that right time, and, and click that shutter. So at that point, the camera also kind of disappears, which is right. kind of strange when you consider it's like this big beast that's sitting there you know, next to you. Right. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, it's a very addictive process and just, it's, it's really, really rewarding. That's for sure. No, I can totally imagine that that would be how it would feel. I, I was talking with another guest a couple episodes back and, and he was, it was uh, Nate Luby and he was talking about the idea that when he's out shooting, people talk about, oh yeah, you're going to miss the moment if you're always looking through the camera. And, and he said, it makes him look more at all the different aspects of the scene. But I, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting what you're talking about, the idea that you get it all, you spend all this time to frame it up and, and really think through exactly how to use the movements and and use, you know, all these different moving parts to get it lined up just right. And then you just hang off on the side and wait for the light to be perfect. Yeah. And, and, and also that adds another level of complexity. Like if I am shooting more of a grand landscape sort of photo, you know, you have clouds moving around, right? Like it's hard to know what you have in your shot and what you don't have in your shot. So you have to kind of, you have to kind of uh, like when I'm looking at the ground glass, I kind of figure out what the exact boundaries are like the left, right at the top. And then you're sitting there kind of looking at it as the lights changing and there might be some crazy sunrise or sunset going on. And you think, I I think I might be aiming it at the right direction. I think the (laughs) light that I see in the sky might be in my composition yeah. Um, but after a while you just kind of, you get familiar with it and it just seems, it just kind of seems normal. You need a little frame mounted to the top of your, uh, kit. They actually, oh. they actually do have stuff like that. Do they? Um, and actually the way that I measure it is like, if I'm in a place like death Valley and I'm, you know, there's usually mountains in the background in one way or another, I will use the mountains as a method of measurement. So if I'm on the ground glass and I see, I have, you know, 
uh, three mountains worth of sky in the background. Right. So I just use my fingers. I like, you know, one, two, three, I have three mountains worth of sky. Yeah. Then I'm standing there next to the camera. I just kind of like look at it. I'm going to go one, two, three. I'm like, it looks like that light is showing up in there. So precise. Yeah, there's all exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's almost like the next, uh, you know, with our measurements here in the, the U S you know, inches, feet, all that stuff doesn't really make much sense, but you got inches, feet, and then you got mountains. You know, it's <laughs> along the it. same lines. I love yeah. it. You, you gotta, you gotta use what you've got. That's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, what there's something that you shared, I think it was probably on, on, um, on the F stop collaborate and listen podcast, either that, or it's been on one of your videos since the idea that shooting on the making photog making photographs with this large format kit and, and, and maybe more abstract abstractly film. Mm-hmm. is a mature technology yeah and i i am am i am i misplacing the, you you said that right yeah for sure yeah 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 and, and tell me more about that of, concept because i yeah, I'm, it, it there's a lot of joy that comes with that because with digital and, and i say this saying um from the standpoint that actually i just bought a pretty nice digital camera to kind of allow me to experiment a bit but yeah uh, if i think back to when i was first getting started with um, with photography and landscape photography, I was shooting digital at the time. And let's say you go to an area that has some really beautiful conditions and perhaps like once in a lifetime conditions, you take a picture with it. And at the time that would have been maybe, a, I don't know, a eight, 10 megapixel camera or something like that. And then you look back at that photo, you know, 10 years later and you're like, oh man, I wish that was taken with whatever is out now. Yeah. Um, but if I had taken that picture with film, then I'm working with a mature technology. And so the photo I shot, you know, 10 years ago will be the same quality as a photo shot today as, you know, 10 years from now, so long as film is still being made. But when you work with the mature technology, there's something very rewarding about that because you're kind of free from this cycle of everything always changing, being better. And I think it also helps to build a higher degree of satisfaction with your own work. Because I can go to an area and have some really nice conditions and take a photo. And if I nail the exposure, if everything's just right, I can walk away from that scene saying, Hey, I did the best I can with this. Right. And it, I think it just builds that, that greater sense of satisfaction where I have this portfolio of, you know, over a decade worth of photos. And I look back at them saying like, yeah, I made all the right decisions that turned out great. I'm not mm-hmm. going to resent that photo that wasn't taken with the latest and greatest. Right. Um, and so it's, it's very, very fulfilling in that sense. No, that's a, that's a really cool idea. And I think I, when I first heard you say it, I immediately locked onto that and just, it kept coming back to my mind just for, I mean, for weeks, I, mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, okay, that mature, a mature technology. And I was thinking about some, I have a background in uh, musical instruments mm-hmm. as well. And I play guitar and I grew up playing saxophone and some different things. I was a music major in college. And it's really interesting how recording has been a something that continues to evolve as technology mm-hmm. moves forward. But it, even after digital became a full-on process and a way that we do everything in the recording world, people still want to record to tape. They still mm-hmm. want to record to analog tape. And it's because analog tape has a sound and a feel and it is mature. Like it's not... Mm-hmm we've moved on to other kinds of technologies, but that one still yeah. exists and nothing really feels or sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 
film is a very similar um it, it's it's very similar in its relationship oh for sure yeah but then it's weird because guitars are like that too where mm-hmm. you know it is one of the most prized electric guitars is an is a 1960s Fender Stratocaster interesting and and the brand new ones aren't they are there's slight slight very slight improvements you know like enclosed gearing on the tuners and stuff mm-hmm. like that but everything's based on the old ones and the new ones are trying to sound like the old ones interesting with with just slight changes to make it a little more reliable yeah but that was a it's a mature technology the 1960 strat is what everything else is based on yeah and 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 if you look at i mean there's like you know new materials and stuff that become available and right. but in 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 some ways like with um with cameras and stuff like with you know film cameras and all that sort of stuff I mean, there's the old cameras and there's, you know, more recent ones that they've come out with, but it's, it's all trying to have that. I don't know. It, it's, 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 it, there's a really good correlation between instruments and cameras in that yeah. sense. And, and just working with that mature technology, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's kind of nice on the mind, you know? Well, there's something, there's something really, um, satisfying about it. And I, and I'll, I will say that while I, I have a collection behind me in a cabinet of film, old film, film cameras, I have mm-hmm. my, I have my original OM one from wow. back in the day. So I, I've got a, a Hasselblad 500 CM. Nice. I have my great, great uncle's, um, Yashica mat <laughs> and, cool. and just a bunch and my grandma's old brownie. I have got a bunch of these things and they're really cool. And it bums me out sometimes that the current cameras I use will never be that. They're never yeah. going to be still usable in 50 years. Like yeah. the technology will be laughable at that point. Yeah. They're, they're made to be more disposable now yeah. as opposed yeah. to in the past where you can buy a camera and use that camera for 50 years or whatever. And I mean, some of the really old cameras, like some of the Leicas and stuff, those things are designed to basically last kind of forever, which... Yeah. Which maybe not the best business model in a way. I mean, they, this amazing camera is going to last forever. You know, they always find some way of making. Well, to be clear, better. if it's a Leica, it's going to need a lot of service. So yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get the you got to get those uh, range the range finders uh, calibrated every so often. Yeah, that's the one thing I hear, even on the digital ones. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, not it's, it's an interesting thought. Is you know, like I mentioned guitars, and my my main acoustic guitar is a Taylor guitar. Mm-hmm. And it is a 2001 model and it is not, it doesn't feel old at all. And I, and the cool thing is that will be the same guitar in a hundred years. Yeah. There's no, there's no reason there's, there's nothing about it that will be obsolete, which is yeah. pretty cool. And, and I, I, I imagine they, do they do like special like additions and stuff like, like, like it does on some of their yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. You yeah, figure that's a kind of a sign of uh, kind of a mature technology. You got to come up with something to keep people excited oh, yeah. about new stuff. Yeah. If you want to go down a rabbit hole of different kinds of gear, the Taylor Guitars website is kind of insane. They uh, have they have all kinds of stuff about how they source the woods. So, uh, mm. like ebony is a is a wood that's used in a lot of guitar, violin, piano construction. But there's they have a whole series with a bunch of videos about how they harvest it, how they partner with the 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 different um the local and both indigenous and non-indigenous peoples in the countries where they source the wood mm-hmm. which is crazy it's just this whole it's something you never think about and and to draw another parallel um the first uh, 8x10 camera i used the 
company that made it is called Ebony. Yeah. Because they make some cameras out of ebony wood. The one I had was made of mahogany. So it's yeah. another kind of parallel there between the instruments and oh, cameras yeah. and all that. Yeah. Well, and I think I would guess there it's because they're incredibly dense hardwoods that don't change form over time. Yeah. They, they don't, they're not susceptible to humidity and those sorts of things. So that the tolerances stay tight. Yep. Definitely a very important thing in, in either situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I, so we'll move on. We, we've been, t- <laughs> we got off on some tangents there. So you have been doing a pretty cool box set, mm-hmm. um, a, a limited edition, I think, um, yeah. run of prints. And one of the things that I, I'd love to hear more about it and may, and pr- perhaps the part that I find most fascinating is that you're, it seems like you're making all of it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, all done, all done by hand. Um, I, uh, I initially, uh, I think 2016 was the last year I, I, I was doing these books each year. Uh, it started, I think I started in 2012. Um, and what I do is I'd create a book just as a gift for family and friends around the holidays, because there are certain people it's like, I don't know what to get you here. Here's a book of all the photos from the yeah. year. And, and I did that, I think in 2012, 2013, somewhere, somewhere in, at some point I looked at, it, I'm like, you know, it's turned out kind of cool. Maybe it's just something that people would be interested in. Yeah. Um, so I, I made up a certain number of them and made them available and they actually sold pretty decently through my website. And then the company that I was using to make the books, they were bought up by another company. They went out of business. And so I had to kind of reinvent the process a little bit. So I was thinking, well, why don't I just make actual like good archival pigment prints, put it in a box, create a box set with the same idea of what the book was, but just something I can make myself. And I, I started that in 2017. And um, now we're here in 2020 and I'm kind of working on my box set for the year. And the goal is yeah. to have 10 prints from the year that are you know, my best work from the year. And it also puts a little pressure on me to try to come up with stuff that will be worthy of going in the box set. So it motivates me to work a little bit harder in the field. Right. But then within the box set, you know, people get these 10 prints. There's also some vellum sheets that have the uh, information about the trip on there and kind of a little bit behind the scenes stuff. And um, this year's is an edition of 150. And yeah, I, I, print them myself. I trim all the paper. I make everything. I mail them all out. So it's, it is a lot of work. Um, but it's, it's been a, a pretty, pretty good project and, and something that certainly, uh, helps pay the bills a bit as well, which is something that's kind of difficult to do these days with landscape photography. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, and when you, um, when you're packaged up, what, how do you, how do you, pre- how are they presented? What's the, what's the packaging look like? Yeah. So yeah. So the box, it's a, a black uh, archival box, um, pretty heavy duty box. And then I have a white band that kind of goes around it. That's all hand glued to kind of keep the box shut, have a nice presentation. And then when you open it up, there's the the prints that are in there, the vellum sheets, there's a title sheet that's signed and all the materials I work with. They're very, lots of different textures and stuff. So it's a very tactile experience. Nice. And one of the things I like about it is that you, as you flip through the photos, um, like the back of the paper has a certain feel to it. The, the title sheet is a very highly textured paper. So it's kind of a very tactile experience, which in some ways mimics a little bit of the process of just like flipping through like a bunch of sheets of like eight by 10 film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it is a lot of work 
Um, and one of the things I've learned is to try to be as efficient as possible because the paper is really expensive. Right. And so if a print doesn't turn out for whenever, one reason or another, you know, it, it hurts a little bit to, you know, have bad prints and stuff uh, and have to toss those. Yeah. Um, but it's... No, I can totally I've learned a lot. <laughs> imagine. I've learned right. a lot. That's for sure. Yeah. And so the experience of, you know, when you know that people are buying these limited edition sets, mm-hmm. what are they doing with them? Like, has people, have people told you what, what they do with them? Cause I, yeah, that's kind of one of my first questions. I was like, that looks really cool, but I would, I would be, I would be thinking like, what am I, where does this go? What, how does it get experienced? Well, one, one thing is people will take those individual prints and they'll frame them which is kind of cool. Makes um, sense. Yeah. And I've seen it where people will have these cool collections on their wall where they've had, you know, they've bought like the several different box sets for the years and they'll just like grab some of their favorite prints and have them framed nicely and matted nicely on the wall. Yeah. Other people, they'll be on a bookshelf or a coffee table, something to kind of flip through. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. It's a bit like a book, but yeah. also they are archival pigment prints you can frame. So it's, it's open to a lot of different interpretation. Um, but I've, I've kind of seen people go all different directions with them, which is, which is pretty cool. That's really cool. So when you're, and you, like we mentioned that you make these yourself, the, mm-hmm. tell me about, tell me about your printing process. What do you, yeah, what so do you, what are you using? I use a, uh, Epson P7000. It's a, one of the wide format, um, pigment based printers. Um, it can do the 24 inch roll paper. Mm-hmm. And so the, the prints are printed on the roll paper. Then I, you know, cut them all down to the proper size. So it's an eight by 10 inch paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole process since it's roll paper, you have to flatten the prints. Right. Um, so there's a process for kind of flattening them down and trimming them. And, and basically when I get back from, I go on roughly three or four trips a year. And so when I get back from my first trip of the year, um, I kind of let the picture sit for about a month or so. And then I'll go through and choose maybe three or four photos from that trip that I think are worthy of being in the box set. And I'll go ahead and I'll produce those photos early in the year. And make about a, I start by doing about a hundred prints to do the first part of the edition. So I make all those prints and just kind of stack them in my closet there in some boxes. Yeah. And then, so, and then as the year goes by, I just kind of start filling up that, that box set. And at this point, um, I'm going on a fall trip to Zion, uh, which is my last trip of the year in a couple of weeks. And so I have three spots left in the box set for photos from that trip. Okay. So it puts a little pressure on me to know that. I'm going to go on it's that not trip. Done yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to find some cool subjects. I'm going to have to make sure I like those photos because it takes a while sometimes to know if you like a photo or not. And then after that, you know, start cranking out the prints so I can mail out the box sets by kind of like late November or so. Yeah. No, that's great. So it's, 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 I think puts just the right amount of pressure on me to produce the work I like. Um, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it, it is a lot of work. Okay. So three, you said like three to four trips a year, Yeah, which that seems about right. I think you've maybe done a few more in some, you know, in some cases. Yeah. So I'm, my landscape photography is kind of more of a hobby and when I can get it to cross over, when I can get somebody to pay me to take outdoor pictures, I'm happy as a clam, right? That's awesome. Yeah. But, but most of the time that's my escape. It's that's, that's my way get outside. And I, I think that most people that are landscape photographers, they, they try to get out shooting a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. And, and yet you have a really prolific body of work from 
these very dedicated, very, very um, intense trips. Mm -hmm. I want to, I'd love to know how does that work for you? Do you, do you ever feel like you wish you could go out more? Is it, are you going out the right amount? And is it scratching the itch? Um, you know, how does that work for you compared to, you know, like I know you have a relationship with some, you know, a bunch of different photographers and mm -hmm. I'm thinking of a guy like Nick page and yeah. you know, Nick, I noticed this morning is in Bandon. I grew up down near there uh, on mm -hmm. the Oregon coast. Um, and, and he's out, he's out shooting like two or three days a week. It seems like <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. And, and so that's different. And yet you have a bunch of work. You've got a bunch of really great stuff. Yeah. The, the trips are very concentrated. I'll, I'll usually stay in the field for about seven to 10 days or so at a time. Mm -hmm. And so if you consider like the entire year, I'm in the field for I don't know, may, maybe a little over three weeks. That's, sure. And that's about it. Um, but what I find is that the first day or two of a trip, um, I'm always in this kind of like a little bit of a funk where it's kind of like, I'm trying to adjust to being out in the field and kind of because the, the honest truth is it takes a lot of work to shoot, um, the eight by 10 setup as well as to do video and everything else. So in some ways I almost, when I have a trip coming up, I kind of look at it as like, oh man, this is going to be a lot of work. This is going to be <laughs> a lot of work and I, I love doing it, but just knowing that I have that much work ahead of me can be almost give a little bit of anxiety of like what's coming up. Um, right. but after a day or two, I kind of fall into a rhythm. And my goal is to try to find at least one photo each day, which right. could be something at my feet. It could be something bigger. Um, and I kind of get in this rhythm of shooting photos. But once I get about seven to 10 days in, I know that I have at least seven to 10 scenes I've shot under my belt. Since I'm shooting film, I have no clue what they look like. I get, <laughs> right. I get curious, like I want to see these photos. And there's usually comes at some point on the trip where I take a photo of a subject that I really think has a lot of potential. And once I start getting some photos like that, I have a much stronger desire to head home and to, you got to see, I this. feel, yeah, I feel like my work is done. I feel like I want to see those photos. So it's almost like there is like this, um, this hunger to find the subjects and stuff early on in the trip. And then at a certain point, once I start getting more and more photos, I think are going to be pretty good. Then I kind of start getting to the point where I'm like, ah, I think. I think it's time to go take a shower somewhere. You know, I think, I think I'm, I think I'm Priorities, tired right? of wearing the same socks for seven days straight. Yeah. So that, that kind of settles in at a certain point. Um, and actually one thing I do when I'm in the field, since I don't know how my photos turn out, I convince myself if I, if I get a really good photo early in the trip, I convince myself it turned out horrible. I'm like, Oh, the wind was probably blowing the camera around. I probably didn't meter it right don't even think about that photo. Cause if I'm satisfied with that, I'm not going to be as hungry to find more stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> so I have to play these games with myself to just tell myself everything so far horrible, you know, let's yeah. go find something good. But at a certain point I can't fool myself anymore. Right, I mean, right, there's right. probably some good stuff. <laughs> no, I think, I think you've got some winners. So there's a couple things as you were talking about that, that I think are, are great. And it, and it kind of frames this, like I wasn't meaning to say you don't go shoot very much. Because I don't, <laughs> I, I just, but I just remembered something as I'm thinking about how you do it. Yeah. You're also filming yes. a ton on these yeah. trips. So you're not just out there taking pictures like a lot of landscape photographers. You are also, you also have a, you're, you're hiking around with a large format kit in a big backpacking backpack and 
you're carrying around a full digital video kit with an extra tripod. Yeah. Because you're filming yourself and then you're setting it up. And this is the part that I always think is entertaining. I don't know if anybody else thinks about this, but you walk up and you set up a tripod with the camera and then you go back and you walk by it again. And then you go back and stop the camera and pack it all up and go to the next location. And it's especially not fun if it's like on a backpacking trip where if you ever see a video of me like hiking down a big hill or hiking up a big hill, I I just want people to sit there, just appreciate those shots because yeah, it's because sometimes I'll film all of a sudden, like I work with manual exposures for video all of a sudden, like the, you know, it's cloudy all of a sudden the sun comes out. I'm like, I gotta do that again. (laughs) Um, But also it does give a little chance to kind of stop and take a little bit of a break. So it kind of goes both ways. But th- there is a lot of work that goes into the from the video side. Um, I really can't do the photography and the video at the same time. Right. So oftentimes, if you see me taking a picture, I'm not actually You're taking not, a picture. That's I'm just a faking dry it. run. I'm faking <laughs> right. it afterwards. If you ever see me pull the dark slide from a film holder, that's me actually shooting a photo. Okay. So if there's a dark slide tucked under my uh, like armpit or something like that, or if I'm pulling that dark slide, that's a, actually a real legitimate clip. That's an expensive movement. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I know, like I mentioned, I've got a, I have a Hasselblad, so I understand. Yeah. That's, that's like miniature medium format. It's very, it barely yeah. qualifies, but it does have a dark slide. Mm-hmm. So I, yep. Yep. I kind of important things works. to remember for sure. Yeah. Well, so something else that you mentioned, you mentioned the idea of that first couple days, mm-hmm. first, first day, first couple days being in a funk. Yeah. And one of the things I love is that that's not a surprise to me because you always document that. Yeah. How it's going, even when it's not, even when you think it's not going well. Yeah. And I think it's really refreshing that you put that in there. There's times where, you know, you'll, on your trips, you know, what's, how many episodes is it typically? It's, you know, one per day. Yeah. Exactly. One per day. Yeah. And it'll be great because you'll, you'll put out the first episode and you you get there and you're like, oh man, the lights, yeah. I'm not feeling it. The drive was too long. I got stuck mm-hmm. behind, you know, and it's great that you put that out there and then we get to the end and you're like, I don't think I have anything. Yeah. And, then, and then you put these beautiful transparencies up on a light table and you go, <laughs> yeah, no, you were wrong. It's a winner. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, it, it is pretty, it's, it's very predictable in a way. And it's especially like if I go on a backpacking trip. Yeah. Um, like there's, there's a place I've been going to for a while now for the past few years where I'll get to the trailhead and I kind of look at, I can look down at where I'm going to be hiking. Like the, the following day I look down there, I'm like, Oh man, what am, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> it, it was crazy. Right. Cause I went on this trip in, um, in June, I had this really brief window when there was actually, it wasn't insanely hot. So I went out there and I drove probably about 12 hours to get there starting at about 3am. Sure. But I got 17,000 steps that day because I was pacing around like crazy after I got there, <laughs> just trying to like calm my nerves that like, hey, this is cool. You know, you're not going to get attacked by the river like you did last year, which was not fun. But but like it's there's there's a lot of that goes into that first day funk. Right. Um, but once you kind of get on a roll and stuff, um, then then things start kind of falling in line. But I, I do think it's important to kind of share the actual experience because it's it's so easy to just, you know, play some whatever music and stuff and just like, oh, nothing even happened. It's all good, you know, sure. but it's, it's not true to the experience. So yeah. I think it's important to be true to the experience. Well, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, the So you mentioned 
that things have been changing since the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if you mentioned that before we started recording or, or after, but things have changed for you in your life mm-hmm. with, with what you're doing. Cause I think when I was first watching you were, you had a day job. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that. What's, what's, what's different. When did that happen? And what, what are you doing? Yeah. So when I graduated from college in 2004, um, I got a job at a local camera store here in San Diego, Nelson photo supplies, and I've worked there ever since. Um, but then as I started kind of getting more into photography, um, I kind of wanted a little more time to go on some trips and stuff. So I'd go on these, these trips and actually it all started when the, uh, economy dropped out back in like 2008, 2009. Uh, cause I'd go on these like week long trips and just say, Hey, don't even don't pay me or anything. Don't give me any sick time. I'm just gonna <laughs> go on my trip. You got too many people here that are working and you don't have enough customers coming in. And this was like the perfect excuse to go on a photography trip. Right. And so that's kind of what started the, the tradition of going on these uh, photography trips. And I'd have, you know, a, a winter trip, a spring trip and a fall trip and usually go on a, a camping trip with my wife during the summertime. And even as the economy got better, I'd still go on those trips. It's just kind of what I did. Yeah. Uh, but then at a certain point, I had more like the photography side started picking up a bit where I had more and more work to do to kind of follow up to keep up with all that. Sure. And so I started scaling back my hours at the job. So I went from five days a week down to four days a week for a year. And then the following year I went down to three days a week, then two days a week. At the start of this year, I was working one day a week. So I had already transitioned to mostly doing photography. Right. It was kind of a, it's like going into a pool, just like, you know, just dip my toes in there. Just get, you know, go a little deeper, a little deeper. Right. And, and then, uh, after the pandemic hit, when I was working one day a week, I'm like, well, I should just do the photography full time just because this is the best opportunity that is going to come along and something that's kind of been in the works for, for a while. So, um, yeah, as of March, I'm doing the photography full time now, which is, which is good. Uh, it's also, you start realizing that that mortgage has got to pay itself uh, (laughs) or it's not going to pay itself, you know? (laughs) So, you know, there's some of the, the, the pressures that come along with that when you start realizing, Hey, you know, this is, this is the real deal. But at the same time, over the past several years, um, you know, things have been pretty steady. So, um, so I know, I know that it's, it's definitely a very, very good decision and I'm looking forward to being able to head to some pretty cool locations to time up the trips when the can, or when the conditions are just right at some certain locations, like I've never been in Zion National Park in the winter when they have one of maybe two good um, snowfalls each year. Like sure. they usually have something that drops like a foot or two of snow and it's impossible to time those in advance. Right. But I could just like look at the weather forecast. I'm like, oh, if I leave on Tuesday, I can get there and, you know, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. But everything else is going to maintain basically the same. I'm going to keep the tradition of going on these, you know, week long trips, uh, maybe three or four a year. Yeah. And, uh, keep busy with it, but it's, it's exciting. It's new. It's different. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, well, I guess, and that kind of leads me to kind of my next question. So y- you're doing this and you've mm-hmm. been ramping it up over years. You mentioned earlier as you know, in a passing comment that making a living as a landscape photographer is not easy. Yeah. So what does it look like for you? Because um, that seems like that's kind of the million dollar question. You know, people always want to go, Oh yeah, I want to, I want to go full time. I want to, I want to do this. And this has been a, a a gradual transition. Mm -hmm. 
where's the income uh, come from? What's How does that work for you? So I think the traditional way that a lot of landscape photographers go is like workshops and stuff. And mm. honestly, that's something I've never really been interested in just because, I don't know, I, I just don't know what I could offer that other people don't already do. So this just hasn't been something I've really been interested in. I really want to pursue photography for just, you know, building up my own work and my own portfolio and everything. And so it, um, some of it is from YouTube, but I actually don't have the ads turned on on YouTube. So I don't really have any monetization except for some really old videos. Um, but yeah, volunteer contributions through YouTube were basically to say, Hey, if you enjoy this content, um, and you want to support it and then basically give some information at the end. Right. Um, so that's, that definitely helps out a ton and something I really appreciate because otherwise, I mean, it's kind of hard to figure out some way of doing this, you know? Yeah. Um, also I do have a, a Patreon, but like that sort of stuff, I, I don't, I don't really push that stuff all that much. It's just kind of out there. Um, uh, I do have some eBooks I've come up with over the past couple of years. Um, so some passive income from that, which is good. Um, the box sets, that's something I definitely depend on. And this year actually prints, I've done pretty decent selling prints, which is, which was one of my goals to kind of increase that. Um, but it all kind of just adds up to be enough to be able to, to live on it. It's, it's not going to be like a a glamorous living, but thankfully my wife works full time and I have health benefits through her work. Um, yeah, (laughs) otherwise (laughs) that would be very difficult to, it'd be basically impossible, uh, without having that sort of, um, with that, that, that kind of support. Um, but yeah, oh, it's, just, it's just that's a great. bunch of little pieces of the puzzle that all add up to being able to, to do this, which is kind of cool. No, that's great. That's great. M- mine is very, very similar in terms of how it balances. My, my goal is to pay the mortgage every month. Yes. And, and my, and my wife, uh, if, she, if I pay the mortgage, if I can, if I can ha- make enough to cover the mortgage and have enough to cover all my expenses as well, she's just like, okay, good. Just nods her head and everything's good. Um, nice. if I ever, I'm like, uh, oh, we got to dip into the savings a little bit. I didn't, I didn't quite make it this month. Yeah. She, she kind of just shakes her head. <laughs> yeah. Kind of lights that fire. Like, all right, what, what can I do to get this yeah. going? To-? And actually my wife and I, we're trying to pay off our mortgage pretty early. Oh, we're yeah? on track to do pretty well with it. So there's extra pressure from that, basically doubling up the mortgage payments. Yeah. Cause one of my goals is to get the house paid off and then I want to buy like a little travel trailer to take okay. on the trips and have a shower. Cause yeah. you know, that'd be <laughs> right. nice. Yeah. Right. So now your wife works and has the insurance and all that stuff. Yes. What does she, what does she do? What, what kind uh, of, she does like, she uh, kind of like backend web programming stuff. Okay. So smart people stuff. Nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's, it, it actually worked out really well because, um, she has very good job security in this day and age when, you know, there's the, the people that have that job security. Then there's the people that don't have as much job security. So with the pandemic, Thankfully, that has has worked out very very well in that regard. Yep, that's yeah. kind of the same around here. It's yeah. uh, <laughs> I, we're grateful. My, my wife is in mental health. She mm-hmm. is a, a business administrator in that in that world, and they are just plugging away. Like it yeah. all it all moved virtual, so all those providers are still seeing people. And yeah, that it was kind of like there was no no real break in in anything moving forward. So yeah, and also my my wife is able to work from home as well, which is. Cool. Which is, which is great. So, yeah. Yeah. Now you are, um, I think you consistently ask, pick questions in your Instagram stories about cats and dogs. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of pictures of your, you have, you have multiple cats, just one? Two cats, yeah. Two cats, okay. Yeah. We're a two dog, two big dog family. Mm-hmm. Um, so opposite end, but uh, yeah. you got cats to, you got cat food to, and cat food, cat toys to buy, right? Yes. You got, yeah. you got to make, you got to make a, got to make a living at this somehow. Got to keep those cats happy for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. So the, as, as I watch your work, there's one thing that, that keeps coming up and it's, it has really influenced the way that I think about photography when I'm out in the field. Mm-hmm. You are always talking about reflected light. Yes. I would love to for you. I'm not, it's not that I've never heard that term. Or, I mean, obviously I know that term it's yeah. Heck I have, I think I bought three reflectors last week for a studio job. So I know about yeah. reflected light, <laughs> <laughs> but the way you use it and the way that you hunt it is really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I think your work, there's some things in your work that's, that are really, really cool that I think are directly related to that. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love for you to kind of, Kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, since I'm working mostly with slide film, slide film has a very limited dynamic range. So uh, it's you have about four stops of latitude um, overall. So if you have a crazy to me, I can't even. (laughs) I can't even wrap my mind around that. Yeah. So if you're trying to take a picture of like a a grand landscape and you have like this bright sky and dark foreground, you're getting one or the other, and that's why you use grad filters and all that. But if you're working in a very subdued kind of light, having four stops of latitude is actually an amazing thing because it gives that scene nice natural contrast that if you're to take a picture of the digital cameras, this could be kind of a flat looking subject. Um, and so I work with, I, I really enjoy reflected light, which is something you find in a lot of canyons and stuff in Utah and areas like that, where you have the sun, you know, hitting up against this like huge sandstone wall which reflects light down into the shadows. So I'm shooting in subdued light, but part of the light source is coming from this warm light reflecting off this huge canyon wall that could be like, you know, thousands of feet tall, or it could be like five feet tall. Um, And then part of the light also comes from the blue sky. So you have two different colors of light, opposite colors of light coming from two different directions. And if you're taking a picture of like, for example, like um, uh, I have a photo I shot, back in 2015 of this red maple leaf that's kind of set against this um, kind of drying rippled mud in a uh, in a wash in Zion. You have like warm light coming from one direction, cool light coming from another direction. And it gives a very three-dimensional look to the photo. Mm-hmm. And the, so there are certain films, uh, Velvia and also Provia. These are slide films. And they just, they really pull out those blue tones a lot too. So you end up with this photo that's just very dimensional, very realistic, very 3D. And it just makes for such a beautiful light to work with. And another example I have, um, a couple of years ago, I was in Zion and I was at this area called Big Bend, which is like this big bend in the canyon. Mm-hmm. And you have these huge surprise, towering surprise. walls. Yeah, yeah, good name. Uh, you have these huge towering walls. And I was just like walking in this harsh, harsh sunlight. And then I kind of stepped into the shade because now I'm in the shade from this huge towering wall. And all of a sudden, you just look down at your feet and everything looks good. Everything looks like three-dimensional, looks amazing. And there was even like, this, this will sound slightly morbid, but there was like this dead fox, mostly decomposed, kind of like sitting off the edge of the trail. It's mostly a skeleton with a fuzzy little face. 
I looked at it and I'm like, this thing, this dead fox looks amazing in this reflected light. If it can make a dead fox look really, really good, you know, if you have uh, some nice grasses and leaves and stuff, you you just photograph these beautiful subjects and it just, it comes through really, really well. And you could also, I mean, you could take the pictures just fine with a digital camera too, but there's, there's a way that film accentuates the blues a little bit sure. more and that pulls out that dimensional light. So that's, it's something I look forward to shooting when I go to areas like in Utah. Um, but also like death Valley. Um, I, there's this scene I photographed is just right alongside the road earlier this year. And it's, it's this little, uh, hoodoo that's kind of at the base of this cliff. And, uh, it was in the morning, so it's, it's in shade, but the sun's about, the sun's kind of rising pretty fast. It's mm-hmm. pretty soon going to peek into the frame. And so there was sun hitting the ground in front of this hoodoo, maybe about 15 feet in front of it, which is reflecting up off, um, off the sort of the warm grayish kind of uh sand and gravel and stuff but then the background is catching more light from the blue sky so you get this warm cool mix which also in photography you know warm tones kind of move forward cool tones kind of retreat back in the photo right so it it really builds this really cool 3d effect and it just photographs really really well on slide film so that's why i I, I pursue that so much. No, that's great. That's great. Well, I, I love how often you mention it. And I'm like, oh, there he is talking. Oh, yeah. About it's like a drinking again. game. Yeah, <laughs> reflected a lot. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, that's it's great because I I was actually, te- you know, pandemic stuff leads you to do other jobs that you don't like. For me, at least. Yeah. I, I did a senior portrait, um, uh-huh. which I don't ever do, and yeah. it was cool because the it's a, f- a friend from high school's son. Mm-hmm. who is also a photographer. And she mentioned like, who do you want to take your pictures? She's like, I want Dan to take my pictures because he followed yeah. me. And so I actually got a chance to do a, um, a zoom call lesson with him. And it was hmm. interesting talking, but we we're looking through these portraits we took of him. And if there were some where there was reflected light from foliage and it was, yeah. it was causing a green cast on everything. Yes. And it was really interesting to walk through that with him and to talk about why that happened. Yes. And then talk about, okay, so here's how we correct it <laughs> in yeah. the digital realm. But he, then we found other shots where there was a decidedly blue cast because we were in a area where there was a bunch of stone mm-hmm. that was, then it was causing this, this blue cast. And then we were able to kind of pull it, push it forward and pull it back and really play with that. And it was it was a great object lesson in how reflected light affects your, your image. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's such a, a beautiful light. And just like you're saying, you know, like with greens and other stuff like that, sometimes it can be a good thing. Right. Sometimes when it comes to skin tone, not so much. Exactly. Uh, but I think it's one of the things that us as photographers notice and pay a lot of attention to. And probably also like, you know, people that are painting still lifes and stuff, you know, they have like the color reflecting off like the red tablecloth onto like the, the vase or stuff like that. So it's something the average person may not pay attention to, but yeah, photographers. Yeah. We're all over that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of cool. So one of the things that obviously you've worked, you worked in a camera, you know, a camera store for Mm -hmm. years and you've been, you've tackled, I think probably one of the most difficult disciplines in the photography world, shooting large format. Yeah. What, does photography do for you personally? Like, why do you, you spend an an inordinate amount of time handling these big plates of, you know, these big sheets of film and coolers in the back of your rig for it. And (laughs) I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff, but at the end of the day, 
Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean to you and why do you pursue this? I, I think it can really be summed up as the the moment of trying to figure out a composition um, on with so large format, get the, the dark cloth over you and kind of like looking at the image on the ground glass. It's all upside down and backwards. But when focusing on that part of the, the photography and just kind of dialing things in, it's almost like a little bit of a meditation. All you think about is the task at hand in terms of it's, it's like problem solving, trying to figure out the best possible solution for this particular thing. You know that there's, there's a solution there. You just have to find it, but it's kind of like the, the world grows quiet. And then all you think about is just what you're doing at that particular time. Um, which is, which is kind of nice. You don't have like the voices of like self doubt and everything else that kind of goes with it, you know, but just that, that moment of composing the photo of standing there kind of waiting for the light, looking for subjects. Um, I think it just kind of helps the kind of quiet down everything else. And you just font, concentrate on that one thing, mm-hmm. which I think is increasingly difficult to do these days when, you know, you're, you've got notifications popping up on your phone and you always, there's always something going on in the background and everything else. So I think it's just that that quiet sense of just concentration that, that I do enjoy though. It's, it's a little bit ridiculous when you think about it, the, all of the other, you know, lugging around the, the big camera recording stuff on video. It, it doesn't. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't seem on the surface like it's like that, but it's that moment of composing the photo is, yeah. is I think what makes it all worthwhile. How do you feel like, um, was, was this, going out into rugged places, something you did before you were a photographer or is it something, not, um, not really, you kind of, um, you I mean, kind of grew to experience them at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed being outdoors. I've always enjoyed, um, going on hikes and stuff like that. But as far as visiting some of these places, it really wasn't until I was doing photography that I was doing that. But I will say that photography gives you an excuse to visit some of these areas by yourself, which in other situations, you know, if like I'll, I'll go on summer trips with my wife and we'll go visit all these areas. And, and I love that. It's, it's fantastic. It would be hard to do photography at the same time as that because photography involves sort of a different sort of concentration. Right. Um, but I would say that if a person was just traveling solo to national parks and going to find some weird obscure Canyon somewhere and staring at a rock for probably about eight hours while the sun's moving. <laughs> that's the definition of probably crazy. That's that doesn't. So photography gives you kind of an excuse to. So you're saying do the, gear, some of those the gear makes you not crazy. I, I that's perhaps, but I, <laughs> okay. it also, now it does make me extra crazy. Yeah. It, well, it's, it's now we've just justified mental yeah. health. Uh, yeah. This is, this is your, this is your mental health treatment, right? Yeah. And, and I remember there was also one time way back I was in death Valley and I found this cool composition. It was, it was like midday or so. And I'm like, all right, I found the composition. I'm going to sit on this until like sunset. And I, I was out on these salt flats. I, there's no one around anywhere. I'm like, I've got nothing else to do. So I just lay down on the salt flats, put my hat over my head, rested my head on my uh, backpack and just took a nap out there. Yeah. And I'm literally watching clouds go by. I'm like, this is, if it wasn't for photography, I wouldn't be doing this. Right, so it, right. yeah, there's, it's, yeah. I've had moments <laughs> where, um, up here in, up here in Oregon, 
it's a lot of our landscape subjects are a lot of ocean, a lot of forest and waterfalls. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a one from earlier this summer where I kind of realized my feet were starting to go to sleep because I was standing in icy uh, water. Yeah. And I just, I, and I was wearing sandals, um, oh, yeah. you know, cause I knew I was going to get wet and I kind of finally looked up and my friend Cody was behind me and he's like, are you done yet? And he's a photographer. So if a photographer who's with you asks, are yeah. you done yet? Yeah. You know, you know, something's going on and yeah. I've been standing there, um, uh, in the river for way too long. And it took about a good 45 minutes for him to kind of thaw out. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I was just going to ask you and you, you brought it up right there, but, um, you tend to primarily get out into these wild places solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're not, obviously you're not talking your wife into coming out and being your videographer. So no. <laughs> tell me about the, the solo nature of this versus going out in a group of people. So I, I find it's really important to, to go out solo because it a lot of these areas and for these subjects, it really just takes a lot of concentration and just wandering around and just focus all your attention kind of on one thing. Um, there's been times I've gone on trips with other photographers and even if we are extremely like-minded, um, I find that it's difficult to take photos, um, because I don't want to, uh, hold back someone else from going somewhere else that they want to go to. Um, I just want to, you know, make sure everything goes smooth and stuff like that. So, uh, one thing that does work out pretty well is, you know, going to an area with other photographers and you, you see them at night, you see them at, you know, the, the campsite for the evening and stuff like that, but then just go out and kind of do your own thing during the day. Right. Um, that, that to me works out pretty well, but when it comes to going to some of these other areas, I do enjoy going to areas that are definitely off the beaten path where I can just kind of work and concentrate just by myself. I don't have to worry about someone like walking through the shot or whether I'm, you know, sitting on a shot too long or whatever. So I, I've, I've definitely ventured more into, uh, kind of just, you know, studying the Google satellite imagery and trying to find cool canyons to go into and spending mm-hmm. time there where you just concentrate on that one thing. And, and I think that's really what I need, especially with a large format where the slightest distraction just kind of throws me off my game. Sure. So, yeah. Well, well, I find that you oftentimes are, I think like, like anybody, when I look at a lot of your photographs and my initial thought is, oh my gosh, where is that? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> like, um, and I know, I mean, you, you say right in the beginning, I'm going to Zion or I'm yeah. in Death Valley. Yeah. And yet my first inclination is I want to find that and I want to go see it. Yeah. Is that a reaction you get from a lot of people? Uh, I, I think so to some, to some degree. Um, but also the, the longer I've been doing this, the more I've been kind of venturing further and further away from established areas, just so I can kind of have that moment to kind of work in peace. Sure. Um, and one of the things I've kind of stressed through the years is that it's important to, be very careful about where you say you are and like locations and stuff. Cause there's in a place like Zion, there's the main areas that are made to take a lot of foot traffic and stuff. Right. But there's so many cool areas that are tucked away that people would never even know existed. But if they were to become popular, um, it will have a very negative impact on some of those areas. So I definitely use a lot of discretion as far as, um, 
showing where I am, saying where I am. I don't really give names of locations and stuff because I think once some of those areas are out in the open a little bit more, you can't pull them back in. And we've also seen increases in like uh, uh, vandalism and stuff like that. Usually it's areas very close to the road. Right. Um, But yeah, I've always been very mindful about uh, disclosing anything specific but also, I, I don't think there's a lot of value. Like if, if there is like some really cool tree somewhere, if a person sees that and says, oh, I want to, I'm inspired by that. I want to go shoot something like that. I, I think it really should inspire them to kind of go, go explore some area on their own. Yeah. Because yeah. you'll, you'll hold that in a higher level of esteem than like, oh, here's this picture I found. And I want to shoot the same one. It's, it's never the same, you know? Yeah. So when you're off in these kind of remote areas in, in more popular area, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're in a remote area of Zion, but yeah. you're still in Zion. Yeah. What is that? What is your experience like in these remote areas versus the more, the more popular, highly trafficked areas? What do you, what do you see? What difference do you see? Well, um, I mean, obviously aside from just that you're by yourself, it's, it's amazing how a place like Zion, if it does not take very far getting away from the road to have the place absolutely to yourself. I mean, there there's areas that I go there where there's, there's no footprints. Well, there's no footprints from people. There's footprints from animals and stuff, Yeah. but it doesn't take very much to get away from that. And just like the, the calm, the quiet, the ability to just content, you know, concentrate on everything. It, it really is a pretty awesome experience to know that, you know, I didn't have to travel that far to get there, mm-hmm. but now I have this whole place to myself and as I mentioned earlier, if I have any sort of little distraction, like if I'm trying to set up a photo, but there's someone kind of like hanging around, you know, asking all the questions of, you know, is that a Hasselblad? You know, that's what they, those people yeah. always ask that. Right, right. Uh, it, it just, it throws off my concentration or like I can't even really shoot. So to me, there's a lot of value of kind of going off to these areas just so I can work better. Um, but also you see another side of these parks that very, very few people do. Um, and I think there's also something kind of special about that that as well. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And there's, it's interesting because I think that we have a couple, we have a couple really remote areas in Oregon that have a a very death Valley sort of a vibe. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you go out there and and you can just drive anywhere you want in any direction. There's nobody there. There's no Mm -hmm. landmarks. There's, you know, there's a good chance you could stand in a place where nobody's been for years. Yeah. Um, It's not hard to do. And then there's also areas where you will find all kinds of signs that people have been here. Yes. You know, um, and I think that's a, it's an interesting juxtaposition where how the the traffic and the visiting can be so intense that it kind of begins to ruin it. Yeah, for sure. But it's so easy to just step just slightly off the normal beaten path and find a place that nobody ever goes. Yeah. And that's, and uh, a few years ago, um, I was in Zion and it was kind of near the end of the trip. I noticed that there was more trash down in some of the washes and stuff than I'd been used to seeing. So I'm like, well, today I'm just going to go around and pick up trash. And it, it was actually pretty interesting seeing all the stuff right along the road, like cigarette butts, all that sort of stuff right along the road. You go about 20 feet from the road. There's not a lot of stuff. So it's like right. all right along the road, right along parking areas and you can kind of see progressively people venturing a little further and further based on the trash that they leave behind. But you go a little ways and it's completely pristine. Right. And so I, I think it's kind of really shows that not a lot of people venture off. And 
and you know, it's probably a, a good thing they're not venturing too far, but you know, probably yeah. shouldn't be throwing trash on the ground either. So, no. <laughs> right. Well, one of the things I, I, I thought was, it's not a good thing, but I was just slightly entertained by the Mylar balloon collecting yes. on some of your videos. Oh uh, yeah. I think that was in death Valley. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like this been this running theme where I, I noticed it like, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. I'm like, I'm just driving along this road in death Valley that gets hardly anyone driving on it's just like really rough dirt road. And I see something shiny there. So I stop my car, pull out and I see this Mylar balloon that probably traveled a couple hundred miles from maybe the LA area or somewhere else. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, obviously I'm going to pick that up. That doesn't need to be out here right. and travel down the road a little further and another Mylar balloon, another Mylar. So now everywhere I go, I seem to find these Mylar balloons. It's the Mylar been, triangle. Yeah. And I've been keeping every single one of them. Oh. So I, I, I have them in a, in a bag in my closet and what I'm going to do is I'm eventually going to work on a project where I'm going to photograph them and maybe make a zine with them because first of all, people shouldn't be releasing Mylar balloons because they can travel really far and yeah. then they'll just, you're just basically throwing trash really long distance when you're doing that. Right. But also there's like a little bit of a, it's almost like a little bit of a sad story behind them because here you have like this happy birthday balloon that was at someone's birthday then someone released it. Now you're just banishing this happy birthday balloon for like the rest of its life in the <laughs> desert where it's going to be like baked in the Death Valley sun. A- anthropomorphizing people's trash. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like it's, it's almost kind of sad to come upon it because you just see like this happy birthday balloon, which is like snagged in this bush, like along the road in Death Valley. And like this was there was once a birthday cake. Someone was opening gifts and here this balloon is just trash. You know what's even sadder about it? Nobody cut that balloon open and sucked in the helium. That's true. You know, I mean, that's, that's a lost good opportunities lost. That's a totally good opportunity that got thrown away. Yeah. And, and there's a balloon I found when I went up to the white mountains to photograph the Briscoe pines and a person had written all over it, like with a Sharpie, like all their thoughts and they released it and you, you can't really read much of anything of it, sure. but it's like, there's a story behind that one too, where it's just kind of, I'm fascinated by this, like this, this concept of story and here these balloons have gone on these journeys. Um, so I, I, I think it'll be interesting to photograph them yeah. and just kind of show what they become and where they ended up and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure you, uh, keep me in mind and let me know when you do that project. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'll see it if you, if you post it in any of your normal channels, but Ch- chances are it'll be maybe next year, depending on how many I find in yeah. uh, death Valley, I need about I'm, 10 more. I'm glad I brought it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that, um, that I've been curious about is that you seem to have very specific, you have your places that mm-hmm. you like, you like to go. Yeah. If anything, watching your videos is a lesson in returning to the same places for sure. And seeing, and seeing a different scene in a place you've been many times. Mm-hmm. I've seen, I've seen you walk through and you go, I've never seen this before. I, yeah. I've been here before, but I've never seen this. Yeah. Do you, you know, you typically go a long way from home for your photography. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't shoot close to home much at all. Why is that? Why, why, like, here's a, a question. I know it's, you know, it's a slower process. It's this large, large, why aren't you down by it? Why aren't you doing shooting, uh, beach scenes? Why, why not that kind of thing? It, it you gotta, I have to be in a certain mindset, mm-hmm. which is that mindset after like two days of going on that trip. You know, the, the mindset, the first two days, eh, but mindset on day three, four, five, six, that's the mindset I want. Yeah. And so what I find is that 
I really need to be a certain distance from home. So if after day one or day two, things aren't going great, I'm not just going to drive home. Right. So if I'm like in Zion, which is eight hours away. Sunk cost, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. So if, if, I, if I'm in Zion and I'll go there in the wintertime, for example, and if it's like, uh, you know, a couple days in the trip and things aren't going all that great, I'm, I'm going to do the math at a certain point. Like if I leave home right now, I'll get home at four in the morning. This is not, I, I'm going to stick out another day. <laughs> right. So I think being that far away kind of helps me to kind of keep going for a while, which yeah. is, which is pretty good. Um, but I do enjoy returning to areas because it's, um, you know, you go to an area the first time you kind of, you'll see the potential, but you see mostly like the low hanging fruit. Um, mm-hmm. the shots are kind of the obvious shots, but you go back again and then you start to notice these more, more and more subtle shots. But also, like you mentioned, you start to, uh, notice changes in a location. Things are different and you'll notice when things are maybe a sp- particularly special at a location. Like if you visit a location for the first time and everything looks pretty decent, but you don't really know if, is this a unique condition or is this the way it looks every single time you go there? So it's tough to recognize those truly special moments unless you go back again and again and you notice that, Hey, you know, this, this tree has far better fall color than it has in past years. And there's so much potential all around you. So I I do enjoy the process of going back to these areas uh, continuing to explore them because a place like Zion, I can go there for the rest of my life. I will never see the whole park. Right. So it's, it, there's like untapped potential at pretty much any one of those locations. So that's why I kind of go, you know, spend time in Death Valley, Zion, uh, some canyons in Southern Utah, and just keep going back and kind of getting to know the areas, which is, I think, beneficial. You've even headed up kind of our direction, Redwoods. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. Kind of Northwest. I, you're, you're yeah. Getting... I, I was actually going to be there this past spring, but we all know what happened there. Right. So, uh, right. This coming spring, though, hopefully it'll be up there. I love yeah. that place. It's interesting because I had the same. I had a, a commercial job that was supposed to. I was supposed to be in White Pocket uh, mm. back in June, and it just yeah. got scrapped. The whole thing got uh, scrapped. Yep. And so it's kind of one of those where it seems like a lot of a lot of photographers are sticking closer to home mm-hmm. um, and you know working on projects and doing things that are a little more predictable. A little bit, you know, you don't have to go quite as far. Yeah, it's kind of forced us to to adapt a little bit, which I, I think in the long run will be good because people are building up different skill sets on things. Maybe they're doing video now; they weren't doing video before, and uh, other things along those lines. So it's a it's a weird time, that's for sure. It's it's interesting though because I was noticing I think I think maybe Phil Monson shared it this last week um, that just that the national parks are just getting completely overrun. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is interesting. Photographers are, are in large parts kind of staying, not staying home, but not getting out as much I've noticed, yeah. but it seems like everybody else is completely yeah. overwhelming our, you know, places like that, but also our state parks, our national forest land mm-hmm. here, here in the Northwest. And that's kind of wild. Yeah. I mean, I've seen all sorts of things about how um, some of the people showing up not as much common sense in terms of trash, graffiti, stuff like that. So, um, anytime you have increased visitation, you know, whether it's like a, whatever small percentage of the people that actually visit these areas are the, the people that are going to behave very well, but you have more people going there, you have more of that. So it's, yeah, it's a little sad to see, um, places like Zion where they have graffiti showing up like in the narrows and stuff like that, which was, that's kind of what I was referencing. Yeah. It's stuff you've never seen that stuff before. Um, and then once one person does that, other people think, oh, that's a good idea. So right. it's, it is kind of sad to see. So it's definitely important to, 
I don't know. I, I don't I don't know that those the people that do that can be convinced otherwise because right. they made that decision in the first place. But it is sad to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a it's an odd an odd thing because I don't know that I don't know that all of a sudden there are more bad people. It's just that if you increase yeah. the numbers, yeah, the, the chances of somebody who doesn't have a lot of common sense or doesn't have respect for the land, they yeah. there's more chance they'll end up out there. Exactly. Um, that's it's a that's a tricky one because like you I, at least for me, public lands. Like I want people to go there. Um, yeah. I was just uh, commenting on a friend's Facebook post. He he posted a picture from, I think my literal favorite place on the planet, and it's mm-hmm. way off in southeastern Oregon in the most remote crazy you have to backpack to get there Mm -hmm. and i just hey i was like hey man i've tagged that place in google maps for myself and i've named it and when i go there everybody i go with knows that i have named it this is my spot and it was really interesting to that i'm at once really happy to see him there and Mm -hmm. also i don't want him to share it yeah like i i I don't i kind of don't i mean i it's not that i don't want people to experience it it's that I want them to be told about it when they're ready for it. Yeah. And, and there, there's a lot of areas that are kind of, kind of like that. And cause we we've seen what has happened to, to some areas where it's, it's very seldom good things that right. happen to an area. Once an area becomes much more widely known. It, and this is especially for areas that just don't have the infrastructure to, to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but that's then, a really good point. That's a really yeah. good point. Cause the infrastructure can make a place totally work with huge crowds. Yeah. You know, I, I like a really good example here in the Northwest is that I don't know if you've ever been to the Portland area, but, um, Multnomah falls. I've been there. Yeah. Multnomah falls is crazy beautiful. Yeah. It also has a big giant paved trail yeah. pretty much all the way to the top. That yeah. I've seen, you know, kids and kids, I've seen grandmas in walking, you know, in fancy orthotic sandals walk mm-hmm. all the way to the top. Yeah. I've seen massive crowds of tour buses and it's none the worse for wear. Yeah. But just one trail over if the, when, when most of the gorge shut down, when it, when we had fires, mm-hmm. when they started opening up trails, I was really hoping they wouldn't open some of these because they yeah. cannot support the traffic because it's not paved. It doesn't have railings. It doesn't, and it's kind of one of those things where I, as much as I hate to see our man-made intrusion of paved and railings and stuff like that, it makes it so people, so it actually can support traffic. Yeah. And it's a weird thing to kind of balance. Like, And it seems like there's some, some locations where, you know, a place like that, you know, an area that's designed for people to experience in larger numbers, uh, it's good that people are able to have those right. experiences there. But also, if you can imagine, if you were the first person to stumble upon that and see it without the oh, the paved paths and the churro stands or whatever else they got going on there, <laughs> churros. I love that. <laughs> uh, but like, you're a Southern you're California like stum- guy. <laughs> we don't have churro stands here. <laughs> oh, you're missing out. No, we we, uh, we would have hot chocolate. Um, oh, okay, well, yeah, that, yeah, that, that too. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, if you're to see it and it's like original glory, yeah. then you'd be like. Yeah, this is even better. It's but, really yeah. cool every once in a while to see. You'll see old photos from late 1800s. I think maybe maybe even I'm I'm not sure when it was built, but the bridge in front of Multnomah Falls is called the Benson mm-hmm. Bridge. Yeah. And before that, I believe that's what it's called. I might be speaking out of turn there, but there are pictures before that bridge was there. Oh wow! And I I've often every time I see one of those pictures without the bridge, I just think, what is it? I wonder what it felt like to people when that bridge first went up. 
Yeah. Like now you've ruined this view forever. And yet for all of us in the 20th century, we all like, you can't think of Walton Lola Falls without that bridge. Yeah. 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 When I think of it, I just think of that bridge. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird, weird thing. I, I have, I know there was a lot of controversy when they, when they put in viewing platform and things like that at Horseshoe Bend. Yeah. That's another one that came to mind when you're talking about that. And, and yet at the same time, I just think, well, yeah, but the, the cat is out of the bag. Yeah. You know, that's, we can't ever go back. And it's yeah. like, imagine the Grand Canyon without the parking lots and the visitor center. Yeah. Like, like, if you think a lot of people fall, I mean, not a lot. If you think too many people fall in the Grand Canyon as it is, yeah. what would happen if there was no railing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What would yeah. happen if there was no parking lot? How many yeah. cars would drive right into it? <laughs> so, it's a tricky one. That's for sure. Yeah. It's a weird thing to balance. Well, I... um. I think it's it's great. I love that you're going there. I love seeing your. I get to live vicariously because I live in the Northwest, so I don't make it down to the Southwest very often. And if I do, I've got family with me, and they want yeah. to go in the middle of the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, the harsh light, it's, but until you step in the shadows, and then you look at that that decompose, decomposing gray fox here, and it's beautiful reflected light. <laughs> yeah. When you talked about that, it made me think of like Adventure Time. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever watched that show? No, I haven't. Yeah. N- well, now you've got something to go down a rabbit hole it's a cartoon on cartoon network that my boys uh, love uh, and it's completely absurd and a skeleton with a face is totally you know it would just start talking to you though it'd be a beautiful decaying fox and then it would start talking you know reflected light it would it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me it makes anything better that got really weird real quick yeah <laughs> um so you've mentioned a, one more thing i wanted to ask you about um you have you talked about buying a new digital kit yeah. So that and, and I asked you about it on Instagram, and you said, "Hey, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start trying to see if there's some digital photography I can do as well." Because I know you, mm-hmm. you've been you've had a whole really nice full frame digital kit for doing video. Yeah. But you are. What's the plan for this? What are you What are you going to be doing with this this digital kit? I think the main thing is just to experiment a little bit more. Um, so for my video kit, I have an A7S II Sony with just amazing low light performance, but for yep. still photos, it's 12 megapixels. It's, right. you know, not the most amazing, but I've, I've two lenses for that already. Um, so I recently picked up a A7R4, um, to get some decent resolution in case I come up with something I do want to print. Right. Um, but the main thing is I just want to experiment a little bit more, kind of push the boundaries a little bit. And then maybe based on what I learned from that. I can take that back to to shooting with a film kit because um, it's tough to experiment with the film kit. Um, right. It's about $30 every time you click the shutter. <laughs> right. It takes a long time to get it all set up. So I go with what I know is going to work really well, but I'm not as willing to try different subjects that may or may not be ideal for it, um, both from a time standpoint, but also just the money and everything else. Right. So it, and another thing too, um, I have a, um, a parody Insta- Instagram account called wilderness influencer. Of course. And <laughs> glad you brought it's it like, up. Yeah. It's, it's this little 12 inch doll that looks very realistic. And I photograph it in all kinds of situations that, um, that makes it, you look at the photo, you think it's a real person and just kind right. of all the stereotypical poses you see on Instagram. Um, but what I noticed is when I first started that account, um, I think it was in 20, early 2019 maybe sure um it, it uses a different port, part of the brain like i would take a photo of that doll i mean i'd be in zion it was i had it was a winter trip i'd been taking pictures for several days and eventually it's the end, near the end of the day so i'm just grab this little doll i go down by the river start taking pictures of it right. sounds completely ridiculous but 
it uses plays different... with dolls. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do it all. Um, I, I, it uses a different part of the brain where it's kind of like, well, this is fun. This is different. This is kind of, you know, you, you yeah. have to think about things from a different perspective. Yeah. So that got me thinking like, well, I should just get a digital kit. That's pretty decent quality. And then the same approach, just experiment with it. And the photos I shoot with it, they will probably never see the live day. Um, maybe they will. I don't know. Um, well, they're certainly going to look different. I would, I would guess. Yeah. Although it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if you're able to, I wonder how much of your artistic vision of the things that you do with your large form stuff. I wonder mm-hmm. how much of that might transfer across. That's true. And I think, I think a lot of it will. Yeah. Um, but it'll, it'll be, it'll be an interesting little experiment with that. Um, just to kind of see how that all goes. Um, but yeah, I'm not really planning on like having all kinds of videos on YouTube with doing the digital kit. Cause when I shoot film, the thing that is fairly unique is that every single exposure I take on the trip, people see it. Yeah. So the film reveal videos where I go through all the photos I shot on the trip, if there's horrible pictures, if there's experimental, everyone sees every single photo. Yeah. I like that. Which, which is great from a learning standpoint. But at the same time, I'm also kind of like, I just want to experiment a little bit on my own and shoot some photos that not everyone has seen. Right. So, so I think oh, that's, that's where great. the digital will come in handy for that. Well, I'm hoping you share some, cause I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do. Cause I, I think you have, you got the eye, you got a, you have a gift for this on shooting with film. And I, I am, would bet money that it would translate. That it's, I appreciate that. And yeah. There'll probably be more cat pictures. I'm, I'm guessing more, more cat <laughs> pictures course. on that than on, on large format. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, talking about, um, the videos that you produce, I'm looking at your website right now and you also have quite a bit of resources on here for mm-hmm. people who are interested in pursuing this. You've got, you yeah. have a whole large format resource page. Yeah. You've got a format, you got a, you got a, a video resource page. Mm-hmm. And so I think if anybody's interested in what you're doing, that's a great place to go spend some time. Yeah. It's got all, all the little techniques and little bits of stuff I use, the, the large format stuff. Um, there's not a ton of information out there about it. So right. I figured, you know, why not make a resource page where people can look at that and learn about the different lenses and cameras and stuff like that. Okay. Scratch your own and then the, the video stuff, the same general kind of thing. Um, so it's something I, I think is a good, good resource for people if they're, if they're curious about that stuff. For sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I know I have come back. It's been interesting cause I've spent time with film and then spent time not with film and I'm, but I, I've, I've been thinking about, it. I have a buddy that has been pestering me. He's like, I need to have a four or five, four by five mm-hmm. and I would like to loan it to you and show you how it works. And yeah. so, so I might be tackling that when, when it's we addictive. Kinda, yeah. Um, and I, like I said, I've shot lots of 35 when I, even from when I was growing up and then I've shot a bunch of 120 over mm-hmm. the last five years, six years. Yeah. But I kind of got away from it and I actually have a bunch of film that I need to get developed. But, um, I, I come back to this every so often and I'm to your research page and I, I kind of, I think I'm pretty close to starting to kind of dive back into film a little bit more. But that's I want cool. to do it as a separate thing from digital. And, yeah. And that's kind of how I want to approach it. I want to say, not, I'm going to go and I'm intentionally going with to, to, to make film photographs. Not yeah. And to that, just shoot film alongside digital. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good approach because it does, definitely does have a different set of requirements and different thought process and everything else. And I'll tell you, if you, if you, if you shoot some slide film and if you look at those, you know, four by five transparencies on a light box with a loop, 
it's just downright magic. It's yeah. something you cannot replicate. Yeah. Um, digital doesn't give the same experience. And once you scan that film, it doesn't have the same experience, but just looking at that transparency on a light box, especially if you nail the exposure perfectly, ideal light. Right. It's really cool. It takes no, you right back to when you're shooting it. Yeah. That'll be, that, that's I'm looking forward to it. Cause I haven't, I haven't really played with that side of things. So yeah. the, I'm looking forward to the man, the manual nature of the, yep. sh- the sheets. Um, and, and just really thinking through, Hey, you know, <laughs> you're not going out there with a roll of film. You're going out there with individual yeah. sheets. It's like yeah. I got, I got four shots. Yeah. And that's just probably twice as many as I need, but I'm going to make them count, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, good. Well, I, um, we have been, we've been going for a while here and I would love to ask, and, um, I usually try to give people some prep ahead of time, but it's a podcast. You can probably guess that I would love to know if there's anybody else you think that I should talk to. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, my friend, Alex Burke, okay. um, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. He's, uh, he's in Colorado, I believe. Um, he's, he also is a film shooter, shoots large format stuff, but also has all kinds of cool projects where he's, uh, photographing like all these silos and all this really cool stuff. Um, he's got some really, really nice work. Um, so he'd be very good to have on. Um, and he, he does it full time as well. Oh, cool. Also, uh, my friend, Michael Strickland. Okay. Um, yeah. He, he's, he does the drum scans that I, uh, he does all my drum scans for me. Uh, also happens to be a film shooter is also has digital kit, but he's got this big, uh, almost like a lab he's building in Kansas with, with all the drum scanning and all kinds of, uh, uh, like platinum prints and all kinds yeah. of really cool stuff. So you send all of your stuff out to him to, to scan. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, so I'll, I'll scan stuff at home on a flatbed, but if someone mm-hmm. orders a print, I want to have it be a uh, drum scanned. So I send it to him to get the best possible scan. And do you have a local lab that develops there for you? Yeah. Yeah. I have a lab. It's actually in Carlsbad. I don't know if you know oh, okay. the area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, near, near Legoland. But yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lab that I use for that. And then there's uh, one year where their machine was down and there's a, a lab up in upper Michigan that I sent stuff to. They okay. did a fantastic job as well, but Very it's great cool. to have a local lab. Yeah. 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 We have a pretty hardcore dedicated film store lab thing. They're called blue moon camera in Portland. I haven't heard of it, but it sounds blue moon cool. camera and machine. They sell, they, right. they do all of the, they do all of their printing optically. Oh, cool. So they don't, you Very know, cool. they're, they're like, yep, we'll develop your negatives. And then we threw it on the larger and created your print. <laughs> that's, like, a, that's awesome. It's, it's all old school. And they also sell manual typewriters. <laughs> wow. a, yeah. I mean, blue, blue, blue moon camera and machines with it. Yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> like cool. Analog machines. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, little detour there. So I mentioned your website, but if uh, people want to see more of what you're up to, including follow you on YouTube, um, look at your resources for shooting film, large format, um, or get in on that, uh, the box set, where mm-hmm. do they find you? Yeah. So it's just, uh, well, benhorn.com is my website. You'll find all the stuff there. Um, and then on, uh, Instagram, um, I'm Ben Horn photo, lots of stories with pictures of cats, let's be <laughs> honest. Um, and then, uh, Twitter, I'm, I'm Ben Horn on there, but the main thing is my website, like you mentioned, benhorn.com and that, that kind of ties everything together. Wilderness influencer, easy Wilderness to find influencer. from your, I don't think you, do you link to it from your Instagram? I, I don't have it linked to from mine, but yeah, if you, if you just look up, uh, just on Instagram, wilderness influencer, one word for whatever reason that. It looks like a little, it looks like a little angry white guy with a, with a hat on. 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yep. Wearing, wearing a red jacket. Yeah. And uh, boots and everything. Yeah. People yeah, should go find him. You'll see him. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Well, I'm um, I'm looking forward to seeing the 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 box set for this year. Also, really looking forward to seeing what you what you pull off with that digital kit. But uh, yeah, it'll be an experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been really fun. I like I said, I've been admiring your work for a couple of years, and it's cool to get even more behind the scenes of, of what you're doing and how you do it. Cool. I appreciate it. It was fun. Good, yeah, good, good conversation. <laughs> I agree. Thanks. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, share it with your friends and leave a review on Apple podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Also, I'm open to suggestions for interesting people to interview. So if you know of someone I should talk to, please reach out. You can reach out to me via the email link in the show notes or you can send a message on Instagram or Facebook with the handle at GoTakePictures. New episodes are on the way soon, and if you subscribe, you'll get them as soon as they drop. But in the meantime, go take pictures. <laughs>